Well, before I ask you to rise uh, for the reading of God's Word, I, I want to give us a little bit of context as to what's happening here as we enter into Psalm 136. Yesterday in our country, there was this thing called Rivalry Week. And Rivalry Week is something that happens this normally right around this time, the Thanksgiving week in college football, where rivals get together and they play one another. Yesterday, there was this little game between the third-ranked maize and blue of the University of Michigan versus the crimson and gray, excuse me, scarlet and gray, of the Ohio State University. It was ranked number two in the country. If they were playing in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the home of the Big House, which is the stadium on the University of Michigan campus, they would have had 107,000 people attend that game. It wasn't there yesterday, but it was at the University of Ohio State, where the stadium is called the Shoe. The Shoe holds over 104,000 people. Can you imagine? 104,000 people at a college football game. University of Michigan won big yesterday, but that's not why I'm telling you that. I want you to have 104,000 in your brain here for a second. Then I want you to think, yesterday I was at Texas Live and we were elbow to elbow with other people rooting on or cheering for Mexico and Argentina, whomever you want to root for yesterday. There was a lot of people in Texas Live, but let's look just next door to Texas Live at Globe Life Field. And let's just pretend for a second that the Texas Rangers are any good. And they were in the World Series a couple months, or about a month ago, and Globe Life Field was jam-packed. Globe Life Field holds, holds 40,000 people. So now imagine the shoe at the University of Ohio State, 104. Globe Life Field being fully packed at 40,000. So if your math is anywhere like mine, that's about 144,000 people. Well, that's still not the number I want you to think of. Now imagine I want you to go to a Dallas Mavericks game at the American Airlines Center in downtown Dallas. And the Mavericks are pretty good. They have a really good player by the name of Luka Doncic if you want to go see a really good basketball. Go see him play. Well, American Airlines Center holds a capacity of about 20,000 people. So we have 104, we have 40, we have 20. That's 164,000 people. All screaming and yelling and cheering on their teams. So why do I say all those things to you? Just because it's fun and I like sports? Yeah, kind of. But I also want to give you a context of what's happening here in Psalm 136. You see, we're on the, a few psalms before, there was psalms of ascents, and we know what those are. The psalms of ascents are the people of God ascending up the, the temple mount up to the temple in Jerusalem. They sing these songs as they make their way up. Well, Psalm 136 is not a psalm of ascent. It's actually a psalm sung when they reach the top of the mountain, when they're gathering around the temple. And here, Psalm 136, the context is Passover. When the first century Jerusalem was, about, was a population of about 20,000, 30,000 or so, okay? during the Passover, it swells to around 180,000 people. Now, we can't assume that everybody in Jerusalem is going to the temple to worship on that Passover day. But let's just say it's around 160,000 people. That's the shoe, that's Globe Life Field, and that's American Airlines all combined into one thing. Singing. This psalm. This morning we're going to read this psalm a little bit differently because the intention of this psalm is to be sung by a choir or a soloist and the congregation then responds. So I want you to think that we're not a hundred people in here, but that we gather with the saints of old. Far more than 160,000 strong. Let's rise, and let's read together God's Word, and imagine that we join with the saints. You will see how this is going to work 
here in just a second. You will see that I will read a part, and then you will, you will read your part as well. And you'll get the hang of it. It's, it's fairly repetitive by intention, right? So here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, we say, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters. To Him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sahon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. We're almost there. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. May you carry it to those people gathered here today. Watch over it, guide it, and protect it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So thank you for participating in that. I wanted you to get the sense in which this was not just another reading of the Bible on a Sunday morning, but to join in our hearts and our voices and our minds and our bodies with all of the saints that have gone before us. To imagine a throng of people singing that very same thing. To me, it is a, it's a wonderful image of just what we are attached to and engrafted into. I want to read something else for you this morning. and I want, As I read this, I want you to try to guess where this is from. I'm not going to give you any hints. I'm just going to read something for you. and it's, It very much pertains to Psalm 136. But hear these words here. Just bear with me. It's a couple paragraphs, but... I think you'll get the gist of of what's happening in just a second. Love is as critical for your mind and body as oxygen. It is not negotiable. The more connected you are, the healthier you will be both physically and emotionally. The less connected you are, the more you are at risk. It is also true that the less love you have, the more depression you are likely to experience in your life. Love is probably the best antidepressant there is because one of the most common sources of depression is feeling unloved. 
Most depressed people don't love themselves and they do not feel loved by others. They also are very self-focused, making them less attractive to others and depriving them of opportunities to learn the skills of love. There's a mythology in our culture that love just happens. As a result, the depressed often sit around passively waiting for someone to love them. But love doesn't work that way. To get love and to keep love, you have to go out and be active and learn a variety of specific skills. Most of us get our ideas from love from popular culture. We come to believe that love is something that sweeps us off of our feet. But the pop culture idea of love consists of unrealistic images created for entertainment, which is one reason so many of us are set up to be depressed. It's part of our national vulnerability, like eating junk food, constantly stimulated by image of instant gratification. We think it is love when it's simply distraction and infatuation. One consequence is that when we hit real love, we become upset and disappointed because there are many things that do not fit the cultural ideal. Some of us get demanding and controlling, wanting someone else to do what we think our ideal of romance should be without realizing our ideal is misplaced. Where do you think that's from? A pastor? A sermon? A book? An article? Would you be surprised to know that it's from an article entitled The Power of Love in the Psychology Today issue, December 2002? This is a scientific journal. (laughs) A well-respected scientific journal, nonetheless, that, hey, this thing called love is not just some whim of our emotions. It can be. But it's not only that. Love actually is important, and it describes it as important as oxygen. Love is something that we need to exist and to thrive and to to be healthy. Every bit as much as oxygen. We just read 26 verses of what love really looks like. We just read 26 verses about the kind of love that we all desperately, desperately want and desire. Part of the reason why I had us read it that way is to verbalize that very thing of this is, this is what I want. This is, this is what I need. I need this kind of love. Someone to protect me. Someone to watch over me. Someone to care for me at all expense. Here's the thing. We just read 26 verses of love that we do have. Now. We don't have to pine for it. We don't have to search for it. We don't have to clamor for it. We don't have to wonder if it's there. We have it. It's ours. This is what these people sang about as they ascended and took their place atop the Temple Mount. I wondered to myself this week as I and and as perhaps you celebrated Thanksgiving, if I have this kind of love, why am I always searching for something else? Why am I always searching for some other kind of love and acceptance in any and all places? For acceptance from you, from our friends, from our coworkers, from our bosses, from our friends, from our family, from our church members, from our employees? Perhaps it's because you're a bit like me. We search and we clamor We try to find love because we just simply forget. We forget that we have it. 
We, we forget that we have this kind of love that we read in 26 verses of steadfast love and how God has shown us His steadfast love throughout the generations and we just forget. And when we forget, we want something else and something different and something more. You're a lot like me. Perhaps we were caught up in the bustle of meetings and expectations and goals. Or perhaps we're even mired in depression and hurt and pain. I would say yes to all of those things. This morning I'm going to finish up our little series, series on what it means to live a thankful life. What it means to live lives of gratitude. I think Psalm 136 is a fitting place to conclude this little mini-series. It's a fitting place to conclude our time because thankfulness is on full display here. It's because here we're able to, like the article that we read from Psychology Today, we're able to see that love is not self-centered. Love is not about me. Love's about you. It's about the other person. It's not about what I get or my emotions being tingled in the back of my neck, but it's what I do for you and what the Lord has done for us. So 136 calls us back to a recalibration of what love is. Calls us back to focus our gaze rather than, away, rather than on us, but away from us In this case, it's the steadfast love of the Lord. And this love that He has for us and what that love looks like. We live in a world today that's a bit unique, don't we? It's a unique place that we find ourselves. We live in a world that's hyper-focused on how terrible everybody else is. Right? The other side is the worst. We live in a cancel culture, a world in which we, if we're honest, we do as much of the canceling as we feel that we are canceled. We live in a world that's teaching us to be hypercritical, hyperjudgmental, vigilant almost. The enemy loves this. Why? Because it puts the focus on us. It puts the focus on our self-righteousness, on what I need, on what I want, and what I desire to have or to get or to be. The enemy wants us to operate in the mode of self-righteousness and and fear and in doubt, and everything's falling off the tracks, and it's terrible and awful, because what that does is, is take our focus off of God and His steadfast love and puts it back on us. It says, I have to do something. But we forget his steadfast love endures forever. The enemy wants us there. For it's there where we begin to question everything. And we forget about what the Lord has actually accomplished. When we operate in this environment, it takes the glory away from the Lord and draws the attention to how good we are and how bad they are. Or maybe we could just say, if the world just were to live like I do, 
then everything would be great. But here's the thing about the world. The world's going to live the way the world's going to live because that's the way the world lives. We shouldn't expect anything different. So how do we approach all of that? We have to approach it with the focus and the, the remembrance of what we just read. His steadfast love endures forever and that gives us a hope and a security and a confidence and a faith. Not in how bad the world is because the world is that way. We shouldn't expect anything more or less. But what we should expect and what we should focus on is these 26 verses of the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. It endures forever and ever and ever again. Psalm 36 wants us to remember our lowest state. That like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And we're desperately in need in the love that is steadfast. Not only yesterday, not only today, but a steadfast love for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and into eternity. Because I am the chief of sinners. And I think if you're like me, we've forgotten this. We've forgotten the steadfast love that makes it easy to live in a world of fear and doubt and anxiety and bitterness and anger and hatred. But if we're constantly reminded of this steadfast love, if we say 26 times again this afternoon, His steadfast love endures forever, The question I have for us this morning is, how then am I reminded of this steadfast love? When I find myself in anxiety and fear, when I find myself in doubt and worry, when I find myself in the rabbit hole of the internet information system and I'm tied up and I'm upset, where can I go? Where can I turn? Where can I find myself in that moment? Psalm 36 gives us some helpful insights as to where to go. Insights into those very things, those very emotions, those very realities of who we are. But as we have seen, the refrain throughout, throughout the psalm and throughout our lives is the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. It endures forever. Or maybe, maybe we know it a little bit better this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I can't get that note. They're new every morning, new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Now imagine 160,000 people singing that chorus. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And His mercies never come to an end. Psalm 136 then takes it one step further. And so what are the things that we can be thankful for that show us this steadfast love? When we're in those moments, and we all know what those moments are. We've had those feelings, we've had those emotions What is that? Let's look at that. In the first three verses, we're shown 
one thing that we can turn to and, and go towards when we're feeling that way. We can turn to the Lord's character. In Illinois, we have things that are called forest preserves. Maybe some of you know what these are, and some of, the, some of you have perhaps even been to a forest preserve. Growing up in Colorado, we didn't have forest preserves, and so when I went to college in Illinois, I found out what forest preserves were. Now, it doesn't take a lot of deduction to figure out what a forest preserve is. It's a little section of land that has forest, and they're set aside. They're preserved to, to make sure that there's places where people can have a picnic and ride a bike and to jog a mile or two around. Well, it just happens to be that there is one of these forest preserves directly across the street from the college that, that we attended in the suburbs of Chicago. And it was a really pretty place. It was a beautiful place to, to go indeed have a picnic or to read a bike or or to run, or to jog, or to walk. And our basketball coach thought it was a pretty special place too, and I'll tell you why. He thought it was a pretty special place because it was very hilly. And he thought it was a really great place as he sat in his golf cart about halfway up a hill, one of these very long, steep hills, and he had a megaphone, and he said, run faster, run harder, as we ran up and down this hill over and over and over again. He loved the forest preserve. At that moment, we hated it. But he said what to us? You probably know where I'm going. He said, I want you to run harder and faster because this is going to build fourth quarter character. Got it. Indeed, it was. We were in really good shape, and our team was, my freshman year, we were a nationally ranked team, and we were known for our scrappiness, our hustle, and it's probably because we ran up and down this hill, and we had character. We had physical character. We had this... this mentality about us. But what is character, right? Character is a thing that, that we do when no one's looking. It's, it's, it's the way we operate when the lights aren't on or in the preseason of basketball when we're, when we're training. This is character. This is what our coach was wanting us to build. He was right. But is that the kind of character that we're talking about in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 136? Yes. And, and, and not so Yes. So what is it that I'm talking about here in verses 1 to 3? The, the psalmist is showing us this kind of character. He's showing us the character of the Lord, both in his personality and his ability and who he is and how he operates. The first three verses of this wonderful psalm is the immediate call for these people gathered on this temple mount to remember who the Lord is. And the very first thing that they say, the Lord is what? He is good. 150,000 people singing the goodness of the Lord their God, that He is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. So when we join with the saints of old, as we've done this morning, to remember the character of God's goodness, what are we actually remembering? Remember that in His goodness, His love is so focused on you that it cannot be removed forever. When we remember that he is the God of gods, what are we remembering? There are at least, and there's more, but there are at least two things that we remember when we say God is good and he's the God of gods. He's the God of gods, and what that means simply and very elementary is he is God and everything else is not. In Isaiah 45, we're told that he is God and there is no other God beside him, either before him or after him, and he knows not one. He's God, and there are no other gods. This is what we 
sing and praise him for. We are also reminded that all other gods and idols are of no value. And we will mistake the created for the creator. We are in grave danger. Yes, then we're able to turn back to verse 1 and remember that his good and steadfast love endures forever, as does his grace and his faithfulness. And we, when we remember that he is the Lord of lords, we remember that he reigns. So he's good and he's the God of gods and he's the Lord of lords. He's also sovereign over life and death and everything in between. He is sovereign over all things of the world and the next. From the outset of the psalm, we sing these remembrances and we're formed into those who understand that we shouldn't fear. That we should not be a people of doubt and worry and anxiety, but a people of confidence and security and hope because of His goodness. And He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords and He is sovereign over all things. Character then is something that defines a person, right? We say that about somebody. He, she has good character. They do the right thing, even when no one is looking. Friends, the character of the Lord is good and sovereign. Not when He's not looking, but when we're not looking. He is God even when our focus goes somewhere else. He is still God when we're anxious. He is still God when we're terrified, when we're worried, when we doubt. His character remains true to Himself. His character is the very foundation upon which His steadfast love is established. It's it's the very fundamental thing. His character that never leaves, never forsakes. A thankful life then is one that buoys itself upon that very character. Stakes its ground on that cornerstone of His goodness, of His godness, of His lordship, of His sovereignty. This is His character. He can't not be those things. His steadfast love endures forever. A thankful life is one that understands His steadfast love grips you and me forever because his character requires him to do so. It can't not do so. That's who our God is. So what does that mean? He loves you and me. Even when we don't love him or trust him. He loves you and me forever. In the second, second section of this wonderful psalm, in verses 4-9, to nine, we see the psalmist shift his praise then from the character of God to, to giving thanks about who the Lord is, but about the creation of the Lord. The creation that He has created. One commentator says this, and I love this imagery that, we're, that this commentator says. He says, when talking about this steadfast love and about the, the character of God, he says, That the creation is the theater of God's steadfast love towards us. That he puts this theater out. It's called creation. And it's on that creation in which the drama of life and death and resurrection and salvation and grace and mercy and right, all these things. It's creation is the stage, the theater upon which this is all played out. So it's not worthless or meaningless, but God actually uses it to proclaim His glory. In Romans chapter 1, we're told that the creation of the Lord displays His glory. So what? That no one would be without excuse. 
as we look outside and we see the birds swoop and dive, we see the steadfast love of the Lord. As we see the changing of the seasons, we're able to see the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist takes the steadfast love of the Lord many steps further and says that creation not only displays the existence of God, but in creation is the theater to which God plays out the drama of his love. Have you ever looked out of a window and saw something that has just blown you away? 1982, I was about eight years old. Not quite that old. How math? Six years old, sorry. I remember we had a bay window in our living room, and you had to walk through the living room to, to go to the kitchen. And I remember one morning, I looked out the window, and you couldn't see out of the window. The snow was so high that it was above our roof, and it blocked our bay window. The storm of 1982 in Denver, Colorado, I don't know the footage of the snow, but I do know that the records still hold. There's never been that much snow in one storm in Denver, Colorado before or since, and it covered our bay window. I remember looking out of our window and not seeing anything, and I was absolutely, positively blown away. How could this be? It doesn't snow like this. But perhaps you look out a window and you do see something. You see a glorious sunset. You see the stars. You see an ocean or a mountain range. And it just blows you away. The ancients would call the heavens the window to God's wisdom. So as they looked up into the skies, it was that they looked through this window and past the pain of the skies, they could see the wisdom of the Lord our God. What a great image that the, that the heavens were this window pane into this massive world that the Lord has of his wisdom and that that wisdom holds everything all together. Psalm 8 is one of my favorites. It's, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You set the sun and the moon and the stars in place. And the psalmist asked the right question, right? What is a man that you are mindful of him? You've set universes in place, or the, uni the universe, galaxies in place, planets in motion, hung the stars in the sky. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the wonders of your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is manful that you are mindful of him? It's a rhetorical question. If the Lord is able to do all of that, who are we? We are created in this story, being played out on the drama of his stage as image bearers of the king, of the steadfast, loving king. We are created in this story to play this story out ourselves. If he shows his glory in the galaxies, in the solar system, how much more? How much more does he love you? So as we look around our world today, as we see the change of the seasons and the birds doing their things, we're reminded of he loves us this much. We're to take a moment and give him thanks and praise for the steadfast love of the Lord.
But amazingly, the psalmist isn't finished yet. He, in, in, in verses 10 to 16, he talks about something more. The, the question, how much more, is the key question at this point in the psalm. If the Lord shows himself steadfast in his love to creation, how much more does he show his love for us? The, the, the psalmist answers the question by recounting the glorious moment of the one thing that the people on this temple mount would understand. They sing about the Exodus because it's that event that shows them how much does God love you? As much as he stretched out his hand across the sea, as much as he stretched out his hand across Egypt and killed the firstborn and swallowed Pharaoh in the sea, he loves you this much. And the people sing about this. And so we ask the same question, how much more? But now the story that we sing about and that we look forward to in this upcoming season, the next few weeks, we tell a similar story and yet one that is much more dramatic and sufficient than the Exodus event. How much, if, how much more is the question? The cross is the answer. How much more does the, love, the Lord love you? Nails in the hands of Jesus more. How much more does the Lord love you? Nails to the feet of Jesus more. How much more? Being hung on a cursed tree with his arms outstretched. He loves us that much more. Verses 10 to 16 in Psalm 136 tell a story of salvation and redemption for the people gathered at this temple. They gathered to remember in the Passover that very event. But they also gathered to look forward. They gathered to look forward to the day of the coming of the Messiah. And so here we gather this morning, this day, to look back just as they did on redemption and salvation. We look back on the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we gather here this morning also to look forward, don't we? We look forward to a second advent, a day in which the Lord Jesus does come back to show us and to fulfill that he loves us this much more, that he will bury his enemies once and finally for all and forever and ever. But the moment that we take our eyes off of the cross, we forget what steadfast love looks like. And the enemy is more than happy to jump onto the stage and the drama, isn't he? And he directs our gaze back to ourselves. And what we have done. And what we have accomplished. And what the world is doing or not doing. So then what does it mean to live a thankful life? It's to find ourselves in awe of the redemption story. To find ourselves humbly at the feet of the throne of the Lord our God, who is good and righteous who is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. You see, redemption is the display. If creation is the stage, then redemption is the display of his steadfast love towards us. There is no better love story than the cross. How much more? The cross is the answer. Then to conclude, the psalmist proclaims the providence of the Lord. In other words, the Lord is persistent in his love towards you. It's not just that he does it once yesterday and once today and maybe a couple times tomorrow. No, what the psalmist is saying is this steadfast love that endures forever is persistent. It's ongoing. It never stops. It doesn't take a break. 
doesn't need a sip of water. It doesn't need a cup of coffee. It's persistent. It's always, it's always, it never stops. Forever and ever and ever. I want to do an exercise quickly that many of us have already done this week. Many of us have have Many of us have traditions over Thanksgiving where we go around the table and we say what we're thankful for. Thankful for moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandpa and grandmas. We're even thankful for turkey and ham. We have ham at our house and turkey. I'm thankful for ham. But I want to take a brief moment just for just this moment, for just a second. And I want us to look back over the course of this year. Or maybe even years. To take a moment and see how the steadfast love of the Lord has never ceased in your life. How often is it that we slow down for even 10 or 15 seconds to think, how much? Oh yeah, that much. Can we take a moment to see how he's never left? How he's never forsaken? How he's kept that promise? Can we take a moment to remember how he's been tender and kind? Can we take a moment to remember how he's been gracious? Patient? Where he's walked with you? Where he's carried you? Where he's been faithful to you day after day after day after day forever? The Lord has delivered us from our enemies. He has made us lie down in green pastures and he's brought us to cool waters. Though sometimes it feels the opposite, if we take a moment to pause, we see not only his steadfast love, but his steadfast providence over us. This week's been all about food. (laughs) But today can we come back to the bread of life? The one who sustains and nourishes us? Can we focus our gaze on the focus our gaze on the cross and to remember, along with the saints of old and the saints of tomorrow, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; it endures forever. What does it mean to live a thankful life? It means to know and to understand this kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus has for you. It's because of this love that we're able to live thankful lives of gratitude. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your steadfast love towards us. We thank you for how you have continued to love us through the ages, how you've never stopped. We thank you that you will never stop. And so, Lord, as we now come to this table, we ask that you would watch over it and give us your grace. 
that you would indeed fill us, nourish us in your love and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.